evening or good night, depending on what time you're listening to this, the Archimedes podcast. As always, this month we have a short snippet about evidence-based medicine, critical appraisal, that sort of thing, and two case reports where someone has got a clinical question, gone away, searched the evidence to find out what the best answer to that question might be, appraised it, that is, understood the strengths and weaknesses of the evidence that they've found, and summarised it to bring it together in clinical context to answer, to some extent, the question that they posed. Now, have you all heard about overdiagnosis? I should hope so, because it's been around in the media quite a bit now. The idea is that clinicians are finding milder and milder and milder versions of conditions that don't actually need treating and that, if left alone, would have the same or possibly better outcome than that when you go ahead and treat something. I mean, the example that springs to mind from paediatrics is the excessive use of oxygen saturation in bronchiolitis, where small dips don't actually mean anything different than not having small dips. The fundamental problem with overdiagnosis and consequent overtreatment seems to be the question, how do we know what will happen if we don't do something? This fear of the possible consequence of not doing something, uh, if you want to phrase it more poshly, the outcome of the counterfactual, it's real and it's concerning people. Now, it might be that letting children who are immunocompromised eat normal food what if we do that? It might be that we shouldn't take chest radiographs for follow-up, even in children with round pneumonia. What might we miss there? It might be that we're talking about using a lower dose of aspirin rather than a higher dose of aspirin when it comes to the initial treatment of Kawasaki disease alongside immunoglobulins. Now, the first one of those was dealt with in Archimedes some time ago, and those latter two are the other bits of this podcast. The best way to appraise the evidence for not doing something would be the same as the evidence for doing something, and, and that is the results of randomised control trials that laid to the decreasing the intervention. Now, in some areas, like um, video-assisted intubation, where we've got a Cochrane review that shows that using the video techniques actually leads to improved views, um, but slower... At, intubation times and probably worse outcomes overall. In some situations like that, trials exist. In other areas, we have non-randomised comparative data, that is where people have done the two different things and you can assess how those things vary. And in other areas, we might only have single-arm studies where a lot of people have done something and all we're doing is we're saying not just is it better or is it worse, but just what happens if you do that thing. So, for example, there's a systematic review that pulls together all of the people who have done reduced intensity management for low-risk febrile neutropenia, not treated it with IV antibiotics until the neutrophil counts recovered and the temperature's been down for three or four weeks, or slight exaggeration, but, but, but you get the idea. And in those situations, what you can do is assess the safety of the intervention that you're proposing rather than answering the question, is it better or worse than doing something different? Now, all of those different approaches will have evidence that needs appraisal. It will need weighing. It will need the risks and benefits weighed against the possible biases and errors in the conclusions made. But when we are doing that weighing, we have to remember that sometimes 
the side effects of medicines can be as dangerous as the disease that we're trying to treat. And that's particularly the case when we have a very mild version of a condition that wouldn't, perhaps in the past, have actually been diagnosed as something. What we have to do when we're practicing in this evidence-based way is to be clear about why we are doing or why we are not doing something. We shouldn't just do something in case, perhaps, because somebody told us. And we certainly shouldn't do something just because we can. So, on to our first question this month, which is from Luke Ho and Nigel Curtis of Melbourne in Australia. They're talking about a situation where they have a previously well child who's come into the hospital and has been diagnosed with Kawasaki's disease, been written up for the intravenous immunoglobulins that are being acquired and being put up to run, and you've asked to put up the dose of aspirin to go alongside this to try and prevent coronary artery aneurysms. Perfectly sensible idea, and we've got some reasonable evidence to say that that's the right thing to do. But... What dose of aspirin should you use? Should you use a low dose, a middle-ish dose, or a high dose? And so they asked the clinical question, in children with Kawasaki disease who are being treated with immunoglobulins, does low-dose aspirin, compared to high-dose aspirin, which is the previous standard, reduce the risk of coronary artery aneurysms? They went away and did a very extensive PubMed search where they came up with 333 possible studies that would answer their question. What they were looking for were comparative data, studies that had looked at the use of higher dose and lower dose aspirin, and they excluded small case series. The reason that you might want to exclude small case series is that they may be more likely to be subject to publication bias. That is, if you only had 10 cases, you would tend only to publish it if we had a, a really dramatic effect. So, say, the, all of the low-dose did really badly or all of the low-dose did amazingly well. And if you're in that situation, you worry a little bit that what you're seeing is a chance result rather than something that's more reflective of the truth. They screened all of these 333, got six that were potentially going to answer their question when they looked at them in great detail and then went through the reference list of these but didn't find any extra studies. Of those six studies that they found, there were no randomised controlled trials. All of them were to some extent retrospective rather than set up prospective studies and they ranged in size from 8,456 in a Korean study where they were comparing the use of 30 milligrams per kilo of aspirin to somewhere between 3 and 5 mg per kilo of aspirin to through 1213 in Canada where they were comparing 80 against 3 versus 5 an Israeli study of 358 again comparing 80 to 3 versus 5 and then a couple of studies of around about 70 patients from Iran and the USA the studies from Canada and Israel were time series analysis. That is, something was done in the past and the observations were made about their outcomes there. And then something had changed and been done in the present and outcomes made about that change in practice. The others were more concurrent. That is, that different people were doing different things at roughly the same period of time and the outcomes were being compared because of that. Now, the things that you, you wonder about with a time series analysis, particularly if it's a relatively short period of time that it's looked at, is what is it that's generated the change? Is it that there's been 
like a chance finding the the last five or six cases have all had a particular significant side effect or a particular problem that has just happened by chance you know every now and then you will roll multiple doubles when you're playing monopoly and you will go to jail extremely unfairly and actually really very unjustly because it's not your fault that chance has done that anyway enough of my weekend board game problems um, so, so what you're looking at there is doing that over a longer period of time and not taking changes very, very close to that time series change because that might be more subject to the whims of chance than others. When you're looking at concurrent treatment, then you've got to wonder about, well, why do some treats get treated one way and why do some kids get treated another sometimes it's different places in the hospital sometimes it's different doctors sometimes it's that the children's features are pushing people towards one dose or another dose and in that situation you should be a little bit more concerned because it might be that what you're seeing is a reflection of the kids underlying illness rather than the treatment that they've got when you put all of these things together, though, what you end up with is actually quite a lot of data that's comparing high-ish dose against low-ish dose. Pulling all of those single studies, actually, there really isn't much difference between the low dose and the high dose. If anything, it is more likely that the low dose is better because there will be fewer bleeding-type side effects uh, related to dose of aspirin. And so what they conclude is that despite the fact that there isn't any very high quality data, that we should be using a low dose rather than a high dose of aspirin alongside immunoglobulins. And they propose that the pathophysiology of this is that the immunoglobulin itself has a very anti-inflammatory component. And so you don't need to add to this with the aspirin. So hello, Patrick. Thank you for joining us on the Archimedes podcast. I wonder if you'd like to start by letting us know who you are, where you're working, and what was the clinical question that brought you to writing an Archimedes? Yes, no problem. So I'm currently working um, in Alton Galvin Area Hospital, that's a, a DGH in Northern Ireland, um, at MSD5 in paediatrics currently. At the time of uh, writing the paper, I was working in the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. And the, the idea for, for this Archimedes really came from a clinical scenario of uh, an, an eight-year-old boy who gets admitted with a uh, you know, history of cough and shortness of breath and fever, much sounding like a, a lower respiratory tract infection. And in, in, in this scenario, the child's chest x-ray is reported as a round pneumonia. Um, the child gets appropriately treated as you would for any lower respiratory tract infection with antibiotics and he appears to clinically improve quickly. And then on discharge, the question comes up of whether he should have uh, a follow-up or repeat chest x-ray in the future just to see if these uh, previous findings of brown pneumonia had actually resolved or not. I understand, I'm mainly a paediatric oncologist, um, that really we've moved away from doing routine follow-up x-rays from children with like normal pneumonia we just review them and Mm -hmm. if they're fine we don't bother re-irradiating them but round pneumonias seem to be different Mm -hmm. in in the guidance as as it currently stands yeah well this is why the question came up and um, when i looked into it the uh, most of the guidelines which i did read would suggest uh, and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence behind it but there was always a suggestion like a little sort of uh uh, amendment at the end of of their suggestion of how to treat pneumonia is do not do uh, repeat follow-up x-ray unless in the case of round pneumonia and then as i looked into this further 
these never these recommendations never really seem to seem to be backed up by any strong evidence. So um, that's where we took the to look into it further ourselves. And and where did you go to try and find the evidence to answer that question? Myself and uh, one of my my registered colleagues, Ben McNaughton, we um, did a a PubMed and Medline online search using round pneumonia or round opacification as our uh, key search terms. This did yield a few studies, but like most things in paediatrics, they were mostly to do with adults. There were very few studies which actually were relevant to, to paediatrics. We only found about five papers which were definitely relevant to, to paediatrics. And in many areas, I think, we think the disease is roughly the same in, in children and adults, so you can do some combining. But I think that it's probably a bit different in children, isn't it? Well, this was actually, this is the interesting thing um, that I wasn't overly aware of before I started uh, researching this, but physiology of, of children, as you say, it, it, is quite different and round pneumonia is a sort of physio- physiological phenomenon that we do see in children which isn't seen I- in adults um, uh, and it's sort of it actually has been described in the literature so there is good physiological reasons why a child with a lower respiratory tract infection with a, a-, a- pneumonia can sometimes it, it can appear as well demarcated round spherical lesion whereas in adults a pneumonia just would, would not appear like that so whereas in adults, it's quite reasonable to be a bit more fretty on around pneumonia in a children. It's just because that's how it looks for them this time. It, there isn't really a, a, a special worry we should have. That's what the evidence points towards. I mean, as I said, there were about five uh, uh, papers which we found which were, which were particularly relevant, most of which single case case reports or a series of case reports. But there were two papers in particular which really stood out for us. One was uh, a sort of a retrospective review of 109 chest X-rays, uh, which had all been reported as round pneumonia. And in these 109 cases, uh, about half of them actually had a follow-up X-ray. And in 95% of those cases, the round pneumonia itself uh, had completely resolved. And um, another study which was good uh, was a case-controlled clinical series of 30 children with. Uh, low bar pneumonia compared with 30 children with a round pneumonia and again this was interesting because the two groups in terms of severity of pneumonia were, were pretty much the same and they were treated uh, with appropriate antibiotics and the, the actual clinical picture improved the same in both cases uh, and again the x-ray findings resolved at a two-month follow-up x-ray in both cases, so either lower pneumonia or round pneumonia, they were treated exactly the same, and the X-ray appearances um, resolved in both. So it sounds like, despite the fact that if we take our sort of adult knowledge and and, and we should start worrying about round pneumonias, if you actually look at the evidence, that round pneumonia is just pneumonia that happens to be round, and we should treat it exactly the same way as any other pneumonia. Exactly. Lovely. Well, thank you. I think that's a a really useful uh, bit of Archimedes that will take us away from some of the inherited dogma that we have, and and maybe a a little bit more evidence-based, a a little bit fewer uh, x-rays splattered around, and maybe a little bit less work for our lung cancer colleagues many years in the future as these kids grow up. Well, Uh, hopefully so, yes. Thank you very much, Patrick, for, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for the Archimedes. Um, and I, I hope that your experience of doing it um, will inspire more Archimedes as is from Northern Ireland. And maybe hearing you will inspire other people to submit from other areas of the country too. Hopefully so. So that's this for this month. 
If you want to have your paper talked about on the Archimedes podcast, the only way that's going to happen is by writing one. So crack on. Think of a clinical question that's emerged in your daily work. Go away, search the evidence, bring it together with a rough summary. Make sure you follow the instructions to authors and get in touch to make sure that nobody else has just done it or is in the process of doing it because we wouldn't want to waste all your hard work. Your submission will go through a process of peer review, fine-tuning, editing and sometimes tears. But hopefully you too will be adding to the sum of paediatric knowledge and improving the lot of your fellow paediatricians. Until next month, goodbye.